0: Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Learner Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. After playing in a band and graduating from art school, Nicole Rucker followed her lifelong passion and put her creative energy into baking. She learned eagerly in any job she could find ending up in LA at Jelena Takeaway, then opening her own pie business and restaurant, winning KCRW's Good Food Pie Contest four times along the way. With her first cookbook, Dappled, Nicole shares her love for baking with fruit. It's a lovely book that will help you make the most of whatever fruit you have on hand. In fact, I've got a whole lot of huckleberries in the fridge and they will very soon go into her huckleberry blondies. She visited our kitchen in August 2019. Here's Nicole Rucker and Dappled.
1: Thank you. It's so great that all of you came out here because it's crazy outside. It's so beautiful. But I'm grateful that you're here so that I can tell you all about why I love fruit so much and why I wrote this book. I should start by saying I've never been to Washington, but I've been here for four days, and I'm really confused as to why I didn't write my book from here in August, because... I really feel like I screwed myself by not... Rather than, you know, sweating in the different seasons in Los Angeles, we had one of the longest summers of the year last year. Right when I was in the middle of photographing it, it was very difficult and very hot every single day. I could have been up here, like, swimming in rivers below the waterfalls and buying peaches at a co-op and watching apples roll down the freeway and... (laughs) You know, all these things, picking blackberries until my fingers bleed. I could have done all of these things, these like really romantic things that you guys get to do pretty much all the time. So I hope that you're all doing them every single day. Hot tip, at the coffee shop wine bar down the street, the parking lot has a huge grapevine surrounding the entire thing. And I investigated it earlier. There's also a russeted apple tree that drops into the parking lot, blackberries, and sweet peas, all in one parking lot. <laughs> so you guys are freaking lucky. <laughs> um, but it also, strangely being here and seeing all of that fruit around and driving around Tacoma where my friend is and seeing her neighborhood and all the apple trees on the sidewalks and the pear trees that are everywhere, it does remind me of two places and they're kind of opposite places to here. It reminds me of the south of France pretty intensely because in the south of France there is a lot of beautiful sea weather but there's also apple and pear trees and cherry trees everywhere when you drive around. It's a really gorgeous um, landscape. So it's really romantic in that way. And it also reminds me of Los Angeles, which might sound like a crazy thing to say, because I'm sure when you guys picture Los Angeles, you're picturing the Kardashians. You're picturing Hollywood Boulevard, stars embedded into concrete. But what some of you might not know is that above Hollywood and above the Walk of Fame, there's actually a very large private orchard owned by Bill Pullman on this hill that has like 20 different apple varieties, citruses, bananas, everything. You name it, he's growing it up there because he's also a fruit freak. So Los Angeles has a bounty in a different way. And you guys have such a bounty here. So I think this book might be for you. I fell in love with fruit. A question that a lot of people ask is, why am I writing about fruit? Why did I want to write recipes about fruit? It really goes back to, I'm almost 40, and when I was a kid, my mom gave me a lot of books to read about little girls exploring and fantasy books. And I read all of Anne of Avonlea, Anne of Green Gables. There's a lot of beautiful scenes in that book of eating fruit and walking through farmlands. And uh, it really captured my imagination in San Diego, where I grew up, which is very close to the border of Mexico. It really captured my imagination when I was, you know, in my grandfather's backyard in San Ysidro, which is three miles away from the border, basically, he had a lot of fruit trees in his yard, and they were all of different varieties than what I was reading about. You know, these books take place in England, in Canada, and you know, places with different climates. But it did get me wanting to explore and wanting to find things that I could eat and pretend that I was there, and it kind of transported me to another place in my playtime. And I never really lost that kind of magical realism mentality when it came to fruit. And quite the opposite. By the time I got to college, I was definitely hooked and I was studying art. I was studying photography and film at San Francisco Art Institute. You know, I was a college student. I was poor. I decided to be a vegetarian, but my dad had married his third wife and she was from the Caribbean and she was very much into food. And so she started taking me to restaurants like. Chez Panisse, and a couple other great places that opened in Berkeley at the time. And I was just exposed to a different kind of food than what I grew up with, which was a very poor Native American, Hispanic, Mexican-American food household. So in my childhood home, we had a lot of really delicious food booths. Like, you know, it's the kind of food that has to feed a lot of people. And we had fresh salsa on our table every single day. My grandma made salsa probably three times a week with fresh peppers that my grandpa grew. And we had nectarines, pomegranates, strawberries right outside. But when it came time for dessert, my grandpa would go to the store and buy a frozen cube block of pre-sweetened strawberries and a big sponge cake and Cool Whip because it was really important to him to purchase those things for his family because it meant that he could buy a nice dessert, a fancy dessert, an automated, created dessert in plastic was like a really... And he bought a case of Coke, too. (laughs) You know, it was like a really big deal to him. um, And it meant that our family was living in abundance. In the meantime, the real version of abundance was like right outside the back door. So we had all of these things growing there. And the salsa was flavored with um, fresh lime juice from the lime tree. And we had all kinds of things growing all around us. But it kind of didn't make its way into the house as much. In fact, I feel like we just ate most of it outside, (laughs) like... Literally from the yard and eating it, except for tomatoes, which were in the salsa. So that it was kind of like in opposition to college life, where my my dad's wife, Verna, was taking me to restaurants and encouraging me to try new things. And I started eating uh, all kinds of different cuisines. Once I got to San Francisco in my freshman year, she decided to send me to Paris for a week, which is a huge cliche. It's okay to say that. Every chef who's going to be a chef goes to Paris at some point, I think, or at least they did before culinary school became a thing. And it really did. I had the cliche Paris experience of going there and opening my eyes. I landed as a vegetarian. I left eating ham and roast chicken. And I tried the Spanish strawberries and the raspberries and the fancy fruit desserts that were in the glass and all of the expensive cheeses. And I spent all my money on food and museums. And I was supposed to be studying art. <laughs> and then when I got home, I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to make cakes. And I started baking cakes to take pictures of at school and bring to critiques because if you're making crappy art that's not finished most of the time, then what better way to sweeten the deal than by plying your classmates and your professor with, like, cornbread or, you know, something sweet. So I just started to bring things wherever I went. I was in a band for a while. I would bring cupcakes to every show. It was a way to meet people. It was a way to not be as shy. And I know I'm standing up here giving you guys a speech, but I'm a middle child and uh, I was a performer. But when I wasn't on stage, I was not as outgoing as I seemed on stage. I had a very small group of friends, but everybody knew that I wanted to be a baker, and so by the time I graduated art school, my bandmates had put all their money together and bought me a KitchenAid mixer, uh, (laughs) because I had been mixing cakes by hand for four years. I'd never had anything so nice in my life. That was um, 2002. I had that KitchenAid mixer until 2012, um, which is a long time for a KitchenAid mixer these days. They don't last that long anymore. So anyways... That's all to say, I kind of fell in love and fell hard. And by the time I left school, I knew I wanted to be a baker. I did everything that I could to get a job. I lied my way into my first baking job. I learned there. I never went to culinary school. I've been working since then on developing my craft and honing my craft and just making sure that I found a lane that I could be in. And by the time I got to Los Angeles, that lane quickly became pie. I worked at Jelena Takeaway. I opened that in 2011, um, with Travis Let I was so burnt out by the time I left working in that restaurant that I kind of was dead. I was very tired and had worked very hard to help him open these restaurants, and I was kind of emotionally at the end of my rope and didn't know what I wanted to do and whether I wanted to slave away in a kitchen for somebody else for a long time, and I'm very bullheaded, and I thought, I can be an entrepreneur, I can do my own thing. So one day when I was very, very sad, you know, it was hot. I was like cutting a bunch of stuff. I was managing people. I was just kind of like tired of it all. Someone brought from the farmer's market these peaches. It was July. They brought July flame peaches. And I kind of hadn't been paying attention, like the blinders had been on for a while to like the beauty that was around me because I had forgotten to look. And She brought this flat of peaches, this woman named Judy, and I was kind of standing there in this very hot kitchen. I think I was making jam, and it was very steamy in there. My glasses were fogged up, and I cut open this peach, and it just dripped red all down my arm because July flame peaches are red inside. And I burst into tears. I was just oh my God, what am I doing? This is so beautiful. What the fuck? Like, how did I not see it? You know, it's July. I haven't had a peach yet. Like, where is my mind? And I decided that I needed to get out. I mean, every artist needs to take a break at some point, I think. And that's kind of like the way our brains are wired. But I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I'm not afraid of work. I love work. I, I'll work until my knees don't work. You know, And maybe I'll work in a wheelchair after that. But I just couldn't be there anymore. I had learned enough. And so I left, and I took some time. And I made a vision board. You're supposed to do that in your 30s. <laughs> you know, talked to my husband about our mortgage and what it meant for me to leave. And we had just bought a house. And I was like, well, is the bank going to take it away? Because I left my job that's on the application. I didn't know any of this stuff. The answer is no. <laughs> is if you can keep paying the like keep it. So, I left. I took some time and I really thought like what do I want to focus on and what do I want to do? And I really wanted to stay in the lane that I had created by making pie and really glorify fruit and bend everyone's ear about it. And once I stopped putting the blinders on, I kind of like saw again that the stuff that I had been seeing when I was a kid, the fruit all around me and in the sidewalk and in the backyard was still there and that other people were ignoring it. And, you know, I started to focus my eyes in a different way when I was driving. I mean, you drive everywhere in LA, barely any walking. And I just, you know, one day I was driving down the 10 freeway, I got off in West LA and there's a huge fig tree, you know, over the freeway overpass. It has tons of figs dripping off of it. And you know, they're covered in like toxic metals from the freeway. <laughs> but I was like, huh, that's an interesting spot for a fig tree. And that got me thinking, why are there fig trees all over Los Angeles? Because once you see one, then you see a hundred. Once you see one lemon tree, you see a thousand lemon trees. Then you start to see that the neighbor hasn't picked their tangerines in three years. And there's dried ones on the tree next to the new growth. And I just started to become obsessed with all of this stuff all over and the fact that people weren't gathering it. And like six months later, a lady called me and said, hey, do you want to write a cookbook? What do you want to write it about? We met at a coffee shop and I said, I want to write about fruit. Told her about the fig tree on the freeway overpass, about the fig tree that was on my way to Fairfax Avenue once we started to build the restaurant. Um, There was a green tiger-striped fig tree in someone's front yard. And I had seen it for three years driving back and forth. And uh, one day, a for sale sign came up on the house. And so I called the realtor and said, hey, the figs are going crazy. The house is vacant. There's beetles literally everywhere. Can I help you? Can I pick them? And she said, I'm sure that the the owner of the house would love if you did that. So I slipped $10 in the mail slot and picked all of their figs. (laughs) And got beetles in my hair. Next time I went back, I wore a hat. It just became a part of my routine. And so when I'm driving around Tacoma, where my friend lives, and seeing all these apple trees and pear trees, I'm driving very slowly. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, wow, I wonder if that's an Ashmead's kernel apple, you know, from 300 years ago or something. You know, these trees can live so long, and they're in everybody's yard. So I just became really, really obsessed. And... I wrote this book. It took three years because my editor got fired and I photographed it with one of my best friends who I knew from back when I worked in photography. And he and I were sitting at a desk one day five years ago or six years ago. I said, hey, someday we're going to do a book together, huh? And he was like, yeah, we should do a book together. So when they offered me a a cookbook deal at Avery, I called Alan and I said, "Hey, come over. Let's do this. Let's make a proposal." And luckily, they enjoyed his work as well, and we got to make this beautiful book together, which I love, and I love all of the recipes. There is a substantial section about pie, and it's been a long journey, but it's been a really enjoyable time to get to make this. and I'm so delighted that people, I think, nowadays are starting to refocus their eyes as well, probably because I'm annoying them a little bit. <laughs> like the people at the coffee shop down the street. Hey, whose grapes are those? And my friend in Tacoma, who I, you know, I'm like, hey, can we stop at that house on the way back in your neighborhood? Because there's four apple trees there. Are we legally allowed to pick them if they're on the parkway? Can we Google that? Um, <laughs> You know, I just really think that it's a good place to be to like have your brain in that headspace of looking all around you and seeing all of the beautiful stuff that exists day in and day out. And then you're faced with the task of like, well, you know, I do have the apple tree and what do I do with it and how many pies can you make? But you can also make apple butter, you can also make all kinds of things and There are not enough pages in this book. They didn't even pay me for enough pages to write down all of the things you can do with all of this stuff. But I think that if you already appreciate it and you love fruit, I think an intuitive part of you will kick in and you'll say, using it is better than not using it, even if you're going to compost some of it. So I really want to encourage people with this book and with the photography to be resourceful and be romantic and find the things around you. Also, if you're not a person who's into like gardening and you live in an apartment, go to the co-op and buy the beautiful peaches that are local or you know, go to somebody else's house. It doesn't always have to come from a romantic foraging trip. I I use a lot of frozen stuff in my daily baking, stuff that I freeze myself and stuff that I purchase. For uh, frozen sour cherries, for example, we can't get those in LA. I had never had a fresh sour cherry until last year and i'm almost 40. <laughs> so, i really i had a beautiful experience with some when they came to the market in LA for the first time. I don't know how many of you saw but in the New York Times this past week there was an article about this woman named Karen who works for this produce company called Freshpoint and she's the farmers market kind of like master for this huge produce company. And Karen is thanked in this book because she's one of the only people that i can text at midnight. And say, hey, I need red currants. Where are they gonna come from? And like, when are you getting the red rhubarb that comes from Washington? You guys have great rhubarb here, by the way. I saw someone in someone's front yard the first day that I got here and I swore, just like sent my husband a photo of this fucking place. Like, what <laughs> is this? <laughs> should we move here? <laughs> and he was like, wait, are you really? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe we should. Uh, that and the blackberries is almost enough to get me to leave Los Angeles. <laughs> By the way, I'm here and I'm going on tour and I'm traveling to all these cities to talk to them about fruit, but one of the most in the, in the forward to this book, in the intro, it talks about how I make my husband plant all of these things. So back at home in my house, my husband is taking care of our enormous garden. He's a graphic designer. He didn't grow up gardening. He has no culinary background, but he has managed, I mean, it's a natural talent, I think. He grew a lot of weed in college, but he has managed to create this beautiful space in our yard that has four fig trees, three different colors. Very exciting. Passion fruit vines, an apple tree, We've got a very old tangerine tree. We've got all the tomatoes. We've got onions. We've got olali berries. They haven't taken off yet. We have grapes. We have baby strawberries. We've got it all, and he's back home taking care of all of it. The day before I left Los Angeles to embark on this tour, the banana tree was on the chopping block because it had not produced fruit, and it's four years old. And he thought, oh, the drought of two years ago really messed this tree up, and we need to take it out We need to replace it. You can get another one, but I'm not giving it any more love. It's just like, it's too late. It's got to go. And a couple nights later, we're showing a friend from New York our yard in the middle of the night, and we have flashlights. And we're out in the front yard with flashlights showing them this like fiery chili pepper that he was growing. And my friend Sue turns the flashlight. It was like a movie. And this banana flower is there, (laughs) spotlit. And I screamed, you're not going to kill that thing now. You know, like, oh my god, it's over. The flower finally came. And so every single day, my husband has been sending me a progress update <laughs> photo. of the long the big flower the one flower on the banana plant it's no longer going to be chopped down and you guys probably don't have banana trees growing here in Washington but you're going to go home and you're going to google what it looks like to grow a banana from a flower and you're going to explode your brains because it has this long cone shaped flower it's like this big this cone shaped purple droop coming off of it and Every single petal on this thing lifts up like an armpit. And underneath the armpits, day by day, bananas grow out. So it starts to lift up all these things, and then these, you know, little hands. It's the weirdest, freakiest thing. It looks like an alien. And it keeps lifting up until all of those petals fall off, and you have a long strand of bananas on the rope that look like a spine. It's wild. And finally, it has literally come to fruition. It's a definition of the word fruition. <laughs> That's where it comes from. So it's, uh, it's here and it's ready. So hopefully by the time I get home, they'll be ripe and ready to eat. So I'm, I'm sure you can tell that I could literally talk about this stuff all day long and find more stories to tell you about fruits that need to be eaten. But you probably have questions for me. So if you have questions, I'm here for you.
0: So it sounds like you're not really a purist about it.
1: Well, Los Angeles doesn't have that many seasons. You have hard seasons. I think it's best to eat and use what is closest to you. So that would be seasonally and what tastes best. But we also have these magical things in our refrigerator, in our refrigerators, in our kitchens called freezers. And we need to use them because, you know, the other thing that I could bitch about all day long is how much food is wasted in this country and how much work goes into saving fruit at the peak of its season on a farm in Idaho or Iowa or wherever it is and it goes into a freezer and then it doesn't get used. So I do advocate for using that stuff just because people have worked really hard and people have labored to get it off the plant. So if you need a little boost in the middle of January and make some blueberry muffins with some wild blueberries. Blueberries are a great one. Raspberries are a great one to get frozen. Yeah, they stay intact. The cell wall isn't that fragile, so they won't like completely collapse. Like strawberries are probably the worst thing to freeze. They're really bad. Peaches freeze great. So do apples even, but you don't really need to freeze apples. They're not really a thing. But yeah, I I also love dried fruit. I love well-dried fruit. Um, Slab apricots are great. I actually think slab apricots might be better than fresh apricots. But that's because I haven't had a good apricot since France, you know, 2002. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember it. It was very delicious. But since then, Los Angeles has been suffering. So I haven't been able to get one. Anyone else? Is there a story behind the title? The title directly comes from dappled light filtering through trees. And it reminds me of the reason they called it that was because it inception of the book was from my childhood. And the word dappled, I feel like came up in a couple of kids' stories. You know, I loved horses. There's a horse that's dappled. And I just kind of felt like it was that magical quality to look at things through, which is, you know, the kind of thing that you should be tuning into, I think.
0: Is there any fruit that you found challenging to work with or that you have a hard time building?
1: Yeah, uh, tropical fruit is really hard to cook with. It's also really hard to base a recipe around. Um, Persimmons are very difficult for me. I'm allergic to the soft ones, like really allergic. So those are the really good ones too. So that's kind of the hardest thing. I don't eat walnuts because I'm allergic to them as well. But I would say, yeah, tropical fruit is hard. Pineapple is really easy to bake with. Um, So is mango. But stuff that we don't really get access to... um, You know, I can imagine it being difficult. And I don't want to base make a recipe out of something that I don't get to eat regularly because I can't test it. I have several favorite recipes. Um, Some of them aren't being made as much as I would like. The big hit of the book is tomato cobbler with ricotta biscuits. The ricotta biscuits appear in more than one recipe. That's because they're very good. (laughs) It's a good recipe. The pie section is probably one of the most Tested and researched because I make so many pies, so those will always be close to my heart because I can do it with my eyes closed. From the beginning of the book, I really love. Oh, actually, in dessert cakes, puddings, cobbler's, and crisps, spiced tangerine semolina cake and sweet rhine and fruit cake are both two of my top faves. Can you talk about the inspiration behind your photography and styling like in the book? classic Martha Stewart entertaining books from the late 1990s and <laughs> early 1990s. Really
0: stood, Thank you. Stood, no, her books, they have they stood the test of time. Oh yeah. To, like at
1: weddings. Yeah, yeah. Weddings yeah. is a great book, especially the cake book that yes. she did like 15 years ago. This is a stunning book. She had great style. It's not the same anymore because different creative directors, but original Martha Stewart was amazing.
0: Can you talk a little bit about it? Fruits that you buy ripe, that ripen after
1: yeah. Okay, so that's a big section in the book. So basically there's two different categories of fruit, and this is something that I found out while I was researching the science in the book. I have a good relationship with the food sciences uh, professor at UCLA. So I did a class with her several years in a row about the architecture of pie, and we talked about fruit ripeness a little bit. And when I wanted more of that, I went back to her and we had this discussion about the two different categories. So there's climacteric and non-climacteric. Climacteric Climacteric will continue to ripen on the table. Non-climacteric will not. Climacteric, the root of it means peak. So if uh, it has to reach its peak on the tree, things like blackberries, raspberries, strawberries are kind of contested because... Some science says that they might be able to change a little bit once they're off the bush, but most of them don't. And one of the biggest ones, um, melons and pineapples, uh, they will not keep going. Figs will not keep going once they're off. Basically, what people have perceived as being things getting more ripe is actually deterioration of cells inside the fruit. And the chemistry that's going on when a fruit is ripening or decaying is pretty similar things are changing place and they're transferring starches into juices and there's enzymes and hormones that are off gassing and that's what makes ethylene. So apples are a big producer of that, which is why the saying one bad apple will spoil the barrel because if an apple is bruised or damaged and it's next to all the nice apples, it will give off this gas and everything will start ripening with it, you know, at very erratic rates because of spacing. So a barrel is a terrible place (laughs) to put fruit that you want um, to evenly ripen. So a fruit bowl would also be a terrible place to put fruit that you want to ripen evenly because everything is kind of stacked and some of it is exposed to air. But then there's this other side of the fruit that's being trapped kind of like underneath. So things are going to happen at different rates. Um, Also, as things get softer, things get more bruised. And so You know, it's a delicate balance. I advocate heavily for storing all of your fruit if you want it to continue to ripen in one layer all the time. Just get a sheet tray or get a beautiful platter from a ceramicist and put all of your peaches out in one layer. You might be able to stack, like, one or two on top, like a peach or a plum. But in general, they should all be in one complete layer. Strawberries will deteriorate quickly at room temperature, but the real beauty of a strawberry is the aroma. That's 90% of the beauty of a strawberry. It's all water. And so a strawberry's real flavor comes from how it smells. And it's not gonna smell that much if it's in cold storage. So I like to leave mine out just to like let them come to room temperature and get the most aroma out of them. The other kind of fruit, non-climacteric and climacteric. So the ones that will keep ripening on your counter, apples, lemons, oranges, peaches, plums, nectarines. You have a long runway with those things, which is why when you're purchasing fruit, you can buy it in various stages of ripeness and then take it home, leave it out at room temperature, get like a cloche or something to put over it that's net to keep like fruit flies and stuff away from it and um, it'll keep going. It's all really, there's like a bunch of science-y things (laughs) (laughs) that I wrote down and had checked by a scientist and then purged from my brain, Um, except for climacteric and non-climacteric, but the names of the enzymes and the hormones are in there as well if you're interested. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks.
0: (laughs) Many thanks to Nicole Rucker for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a signed copy of Dappled and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Booklarder. For more information about Booklarder including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.